we are starting a new sermon series this morning, which dovetails perfectly as God would have it, what we just talked about, which is called Being the Church. Being the Church. And I wanted to, this issue is on my heart for two reasons. First of all, for those of you who've been reading along on the, the, Bible, the Family 365 thing, man, we're cruising now, we're in Leviticus, if you're following along with the Bible reading plan that we're doing, and just making great uh, progress through the scripture. Why did I mention this? Because one conviction I've come to repeatedly in reading the Bible with you in a year is how important it is to read the Bible in succession and not piecemealed out. I think I'll just say something on the front side, and this is myself included, by the way. I think as a whole, Christians are biblically ignorant. Ignorance is not a bad word. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It means you're not informed. I think that many of us don't have a full understanding of the scriptures. Now, to be fair, it's a lot to understand. People spend their whole lives studying the scriptures and still don't even begin to scratch the surface of what can be known, what God has revealed through his word. And so there's nothing to say, shame on you for not, for being ignorant. We are all ignorant of the scriptures. And yet, I'm convinced as we read through them, we get to see a bigger picture of what Marissa shared, of who God is and what God is doing and what he's about. I was talking to a friend of mine who's been in the ministry for a very long time, and I'm always encouraged by that. And he was saying, we have to talk about the good parts and the bad parts. And he said, there are both bad parts and good parts in Scripture. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. And they're not, but they're all good parts. <laughs> that's the funny thing. Like, even the bad parts of Scripture are good parts because it's God's love to us. He would tell us the truth, that he would not deceive us, and, and, uh, and therefore leave us abandoned or lost in our sin. And so I was like, right on. This somebody's been a, a pastor for, you know, 30 plus years and was like, man, we got to do it all. We, we can't just cover the good stuff, you know, and like, yeah. That's a, good, that's a good word. And so, we, so my convictions come through reading the scripture with you this year, which is very much an experiential process for all of us, is how important it is th to understand things in context. So what does that mean? That means I have a, re re a renewed conviction that we ought to study scriptures verse to verse, which is a daunting task. Um, I was reading this week again about, uh, you know, kind of the pastors, uh, whatever, leadership models, and they go, uh, very few books of the Bible lend themselves to a six-week sermon series. Hardly any <laughs> do. And uh, they were kind of like laying that out, like, how do you preach to an entire book when it doesn't fit in a small, what our society has come to expect as, you know, this microwave super fast, you know, hurry up and get me the information society. Well, there's a couple things I think that are important in that. One is that we got all the time that we need to learn what we need to know about God. God's not in a hurry. He's not like, ah, you spent too long on that book or this book, right? We got all the time we need. And the second is this, that when we come together, especially if we're reading the Bible in succession, we can pre-read what we're going to talk about together as a family, or we can pre-read what we're going to talk together about as a small group ministry. That's why they're so successful sometimes, because we actually read independently and then study together. That's kind of the model. And I know many small group leaders, and by the way, if you're a small group leader, thank you for your leadership. That's a huge investment in the kingdom of God. But if you're a small group leader, you know that uh, it's, it's, a, it's kind of hard to give out homework. <laughs> you know, we all have that memory of a teacher giving us homework like, no, all the kids in the back of the class didn't want to do homework. Anybody with me on that? Okay, you guys are a bunch of nerds. No, like, I didn't want to do homework, man. And, and so I feel like sometimes in Bible study, we feel bad giving homework. And yet, we have to be ready to be uh, learners, right? That's part of our mission as Christians. We have to be willing to sit down and say, Jesus, I want to know what you have for me. Not, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, now let me get on with my life without him. Because I think that that's hardly any belief at all, to live our lives that way. And so, uh, 
So that's what I was thinking about coming into this. So this series called Being the Church is going to last for a while. We're going to probably pop in and pop out because it's a look at the book of 1 Corinthians, right? So the book of 1 Corinthians is really interesting because it's, it's a letter to the early church written by the Apostle Paul. And, it, and, it, and it's a letter that's all good, but there's bad stuff in it that we've got to deal with, right? And so the series is called Being the Church. I want to start with that idea, though, real quick. I just want to talk about what it means to be the church or to be in the church of Jesus Christ, right? So there's a few phrases that I wrote down that people often say about the church. Here's one. Do you go to church? That's a question we often, or I'll see you at church. Let's go to church. You ought to go to church. And we use that language for the church of Jesus Christ, that's one way that we use it. And I'm like, is that the correct use of the word, church? Do you, do you go to a church? Okay, maybe. Or how about this one? Uh, did you see that church over there? Did you see that church? We had, uh, I had someone say uh, to me last night, we did the wedding. Praise the Lord, by the way. That was awesome fun for those of you who are out with that. And uh, we did the wedding, and we were standing outside waiting to release the, the doves. And uh, someone came up to me, and they said, hey, great job, Pastor. And I said, thank you, God. And, praise the Lord. Thank you. And they go, um, you have a nice church. When was it built? To which I said, it's not ours. We just borrowed it. <laughs> but I didn't even think in the moment about how that was a funny question to ask, right? And so here's what happened, Family Bible Church. Someone from amongst you, I don't want to say who, overheard that and came up and said, don't they know that we are the church? And I'm like, why you got to call me out like that? Because <laughs> I answered the question, you know, and, uh, and it was just somebody, it was a casual conversation, but, you know, here, praise the Lord that someone in our own congregation said, don't they know that we are the church? And I was like, yeah, that this is a building. It's a nice building. It's a beautiful building, and thank God they let us use the building, uh, but it's a building, and we're the church, the gathered people of God. Here's the third thing, uh, a question I would ask maybe as we get started. People, you might overhear when they say, you think, what is the church? People say this, I don't like the church. Have you heard that? I don't like the church. And I, and I think those are three specific questions. Uh, going to church, um, seeing that church, meaning building, or I don't like the church. Because I think the third thing gets to an institutional problem for people, that they just don't like the institution of the church. And so because of that, I would like to debunk uh, in this series through using uh, Corinthians, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the church, but also to debunk some of those things that we think are the church, right? And so that's kind of where we're, where we're going to start this, uh, this first week in 1 Corinthians. But I want to say one thing as we get started. So the church is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that we all celebrate, which is what Marissa shared this morning, that God has done something for us we could not do for ourselves. That he's given us, you know, a good father gives good gifts is what she said in the prayer, right? And the truth is that he has given us something that we could never, ever have gotten had God not given it to us. And specifically, that is forgiveness of our sins and salvation and eternal life. That's a package deal. That he forgives our sins, he gives us salvation in his name, and he preserves us to eternal life. I told you we're reading the Bible in a year. One of the things we're reading right now is Leviticus. It's all full of the sacrificial offerings, the atonement offerings, and these things are being given that, that people might have peace with God, that they might have um, right standing with God for their sins, for the sins of the priests, by the way, for the sins of the people, and for the sins of the land, that they're offering these things to the Lord, that he would be um, satisfied. But of course, we know that these things did not hold, and so he sends his son. They were shadows or four foreshadowing of what was coming in the ultimate manifestation, which is Christ. See, I feel like it's complicated already. Here's, here's what it is. We know the words, 
that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life. That's the gospel. That in Jesus' birth and life and then death on the cross, we are forgiven for all of our sins. And then here it is, three days, we just celebrated Easter, raised from the grave. He's who he says he is, Lord and Master, and therefore we too will have eternal life in his name. Resurrection people, right? And so that's what, so when we say, well, you know, what is the church? That's the church. The people being redeemed by God. The people being redeemed by God. But we're going to talk more specifically then about what that means. Why would I want to say that on the front side? Because I would want anyone leaving here, and again, I hope, and we talk about being missionaries in your life, I hope you listen to the words of the people around you. I was standing last night talking to someone in a real casual environment, and, and they said, I've done enough good stuff now that I hope that the Lord has blessed me to be good enough, to, be sat- to, to have satisfied him for a while. And, and my heart broke, so my love, and I thought, that's not the gospel at all. <laughs> It's great that you're doing good things. I'm not mad about doing good things. I'm not going to say, but wow, what a misunderstanding of what the gospel says is true. That Jesus did everything that we could do nothing for ourselves to save us, and we are indeed truly saved. And then we get to live into good works and good deeds and all these things, but it's not about us being good enough that we can satisfy God for a while, that he wouldn't expect something of us. So there's some real opportunities in our real life every day. Now, I would love to tell you at that moment, I just said, that's not the gospel. I'm going to tell you the gospel. That's not what I did. My heart just broke for the person, and I just processed it. What does that mean? How does this person believe that that's true? I hope that that's not what you believe today. It's a gift of salvation that we have not earned, that we get because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's it. And we have to live in his people and just experience him. Christianity moves from being an obligation to an opportunity, Right? To be able to experience something that God has for us. We're going to talk about that up, coming up in the scriptures here this morning. Before we do, we're going to do what we always do. We want to pray. We're going to pray for God's wisdom. You know the deal. That he would inspire us to understand his word. That he would call us out as his people. Pray with me if you would. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for the chance we have now to dig into your word this morning. And to learn more about you. Uh, to hear more of the stories of the heroes of the faith. Uh, to hear more of the stories of what your Holy Spirit has done, not just through the lives of those who are being obedient to you, not just through the struggles and the the blessings, the ups and the downs, Father, uh, but also through the preservation of your word, that you would bring it to us in this form that we could have in our hands this morning. Oh, Lord, that the words on the page were written, that we could understand who you are. But that not just the words on the page, Father, but that you have not abandoned us to understand them of our own wisdom, but that you have awakened a spirit in us that can discern what the word says, that you can apply it to our lives in a real way. Father, the prayer I I repeat of my sister Marissa this morning, that we are ultimately dependent on you, because where else can we go? So, Father, would you teach us this morning? Would you just fill us with your instruction? Father, for the questions in the room right now that are being raised that I can't even imagine what they are, that that you would be answering those as only you can, that you would awaken our soul to you today, that you would teach us what it means to be your church. Pray you would do this work for your glory, for the benefit of your people, because without you we can go nowhere, do nothing of worth, and for the world that we live in, the culture that is dying to hear your good word. Help us to become those people. We ask it in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. Awesome. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, I told you uh, this morning. We're going to do a slow start here to Corinthians as we have a tendency to do. 
We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1 in three verses, 1 through 3. I want to kind of pull out some deep things from this very, these very few verses. Now, sometimes people will say, well, I don't have enough time to read this Bible. Fair enough, right? Look, three verses. You could read that in like 30 seconds. But to really dig in and understand what's being said is important. There's so many things. By the way, if you want to know where we're going to go next week, the plan is we're going to go right into the next verse, verse 4 next week. And we're going to cover that, and then we're going to jump around. This won't be the pace for all of it. I don't think it's going to be as in chunks that make sense. But this makes sense this morning. So I want to talk about some what the church is. Hopefully you got an engagement sheet, by the way. They look like this this morning. On the back side is some blanks you can fill in as we go. Take, I, I try to leave some space. You can write your own thoughts down in between there. It's important that you would engage with these processes, that you would want to be learned, that you want to know more. So here we go in 1 Corinthians 13. I told you the, the letter was written by Paul. And so here we have it, the very first word, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. And I just want to stop right there, like it was a half a verse, right? It just, it's a whole verse, I guess. But I'm going to ignore the first half of that, though, this morning. Because we know that Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And Paul had to make a case almost every time that he was an apostle because he was not an eyewitness in the fleshly sense of the term as all the other apostles were. And yet he had experienced Christ firsthand and was sent. That's the Cliff Notes version. But Paul expounds that greatly. You know the conversion story of Paul. And so he claims, he, he sets out his authority at the beginning of the letter to saying, I'm Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's the call of my life by the will of God. And those are a couple markers we see as he lays it down. But I want to focus on this last four words. And our brother Sosthenes. Why would I do this? Because I think we need to refute some of the myths that are happening in our current church culture right now, right? And our brother Sosthenes. I, I want to know who is Sosthenes? Who is Sosthenes? Do we know? You know what we don't know? I looked into it. There's some speculation he could be another Sosthenes, but then other people say no, probably not. The dates are wrong. Some people speculate he could be another person named later in the same book, but I think that's kind of unlikely. But you know what we do know? Sosthenes is with Paul. Paul is with Sosthenes. He might have helped write the letter. That could have been it. Maybe Paul dictated the letter and Sosthenes was writing it. I don't know. But this is the first thing that I want us to understand about life in the church or being the church. And it's this, that if I can get to my right slide, churches never lived alone. <laughs> never lived alone. I just want to break this down for a minute. The Apostle Paul probably had the greatest influence in the church besides anyone except Jesus Christ. Like the the way that God worked through Paul was amazing. Most of the New Testament was written by Paul. We know this, right? And we have a tendency to look at Paul and go, man, look at Paul. He's such an awesome dude. Paul did great things with God, but guess what? He did great things in God's name or with God with other people. I can't think of a time that I've seen in the scriptures, and please correct me. You'd be like, hey, there is this time where Paul was absolutely alone. As a matter of fact, in the great tradition of the biblical um, uh, heroes, the people in the Bible will often actually believe the lie that they're all alone. And they'll run off and they'll say, no one, Lord, you have no one but me. I'm thinking of Elijah here. I'm the only one. I'm it. I'm the last hope. And he goes, I have a whole bunch of people. Settle down. You're not alone. This thing cuts both ways because sometimes we believe that we are all alone in the church and we think, well, we're the only ones. But here's the other way this works that's really broken. We think that we can do this all alone. This is the current movement that I see. This says, 
And I'm not saying this, I say this all the time, disclaimer, I'm not saying this as a pastor because I'm wanting people to come to the church. We need to come to church. We need to be together. We need to have other believers in our lives to do our life right in Jesus. You can't do it alone. And that shouldn't even be a controversial thing to say, but boy, I feel like there's so many brothers and sisters who go, you know, I believe the gospel. I just don't like the church. And they're doing it alone. I don't think that that's a thing. And here we have these very subtle, these very quiet words, Paul saying, I'm not doing this alone. Even this letter I'm writing to you is not alone. Our brother Sosthenes, and by the way, notice that it says, it actually says the brother in the text. I looked it up. I wanted to see. And it's like, Sosthenes, the brother. The brother of who? The brother of Paul. Who else? The brother of the church in Corinth. Who else? The brother of the church in the world. He's the brother Sosthenes. He's on mission with me. We're together in this. We think about the model that Jesus used in sending out disciples. And I, I just think we have to speak against this so much because we have this, and this is going to get right into 1 Corinthians, man. Like in two weeks, I probably won't really cover this. But we're going to have this model of like, look at our fill in the blank. Look at our leader. Look at our pastor. It goes like this. Look at our president or look at our whatever. And we hold people up as if they're the one that's doing it all alone. And that's a lie. And Paul right out the gate says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. And you must assume that those things are true of Sosthenes too, that he's with Paul, but he might be called to be an apostle, but he's there by the will of God, right? That God has them there together. I started to say, you remember when Jesus would send out disciples, he didn't say, okay, you go over there and you go over there and you go over there and they come back and tell me what you did. And these guys go out and they get all beat up all by themselves, come back and like, oh, it was him. No, he's like, you two, over there, you two, over there, you two, over there, come back and tell me what you did. And they come back together and they're like, this was crazy. Do you know what happened? And Jesus is like, yeah. <laughs> That's why I sent you out. I knew it was going to happen. I can't tell you how many times I talk to people who are in ministry and they feel all alone. One of the, I think one of the things, and I'll just let you know this little part of my life, not that it's a secret, you know, but one of the ways that God's called me is to encourage other people in ministry, right? I think there's a bit of an irony in that because sometimes I've, I've felt that. I've done the Elijah prayer, like, I'm all alone. And God's like, you're not alone. Settle down. But there's that idea that we're called to, to be together with one another. That in your life, you're called to go with someone in your life of, in Christ. Um, I said earlier, we were talking about being a missionary, right? In your context, you might go to work. You might go, I'm all alone. Probably not. There's other believers there. Find someone and then go, this is our mission field. Start talking about the gospel there. What does it mean? And I don't mean talking about like, you know, preaching in the lunchroom and stuff. I mean like, like there's this beautiful tradition in the church of like, um, what we just talked about with Easter um, with, um, what was the dude who did the, the, had his tomb? Who is it? Joseph of Arimathea. Thank you so much. Yeah, you guys are whispering. You're like, do you really want us to answer that question? Yeah, no, really. Do you, you know, he was like a quiet disciple, but then at the right moment he came out. You know what I mean? There's this beautiful kind of undercurrent in the church of like people like quietly behind the scenes just doing stuff, right, together. Hey, hey, let's conspire together for the gospel for our job. Yeah, but it's not our job. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. We'll do our job. We'll do it super good. But let's conspire together for the gospel purposes at work. Man, that's a really cool idea. Going out together, not going alone. We see this illustrated over and over. Okay, so the church is not meant to be lived alone, ever. It's not meant to be lived alone. And we have a tendency toward isolation. I think I've said it before at Family Bible. I think it's one of the things the devil uses to get in our heads. Gets us all alone and keeps beating us up. Stay in the corner, stay in the corner, stay in the corner. No. No, we're on a team, man, and it's the team of Jesus Christ, and we, he is with us, and his people are with us in the struggle. And so we have the opportunity then uh, 
to live our lives together. So the church is never alone. That's before we even get to the the second point here, which is in verse 2. I'm just going to read it. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. We're going to have to unpack all that. That's going to be a lot. Um, But I want to talk about the word, uh, to the church, to the church of God. I've said this before, but I want you to see it. The church of God is the ecclesia. It means those who are called out, right? And so I'm going to give you a proper definition of ecclesia, and it's this. Ecclesia is a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, also known as a public assembly right? So it is the people of God assembled in a place, yes? So in some ways, you can see the confusion about a building where we gather being called a church, because the church, when, when there are people in it, is always a church. When nobody's in it, it's just a building. That's how that works, because it's the ecclesia, those who are called out. And I've always known myself that they were called out ones. That's how I defined it before this, before we studied this this week. Um, I just said the church was the called out ones, but it's, it's people called out their lives into a public place for discourse and for, for life, not just to talk about it, but to do life in a public way together. They were the gathering of people. As a matter of fact, in Corinth, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, but in Corinth, they were a bit of a spectacle, the early Christians, to the community around them. People did not fully understand what was happening in, in the church in Corinth, the called out ones. And so um, I told you earlier, you know, we, so we have this kind of tendency to fail, you know, like, oh, that's a nice church building. Like, that's what happened last night, yesterday afternoon, <clears throat> and asking those kind of questions of us. It's a place that we show up publicly together, and not just that, but it's, see, and so then you go, okay, so it's any public gathering, right? It's any public gathering? No, because there's two key words tagged on there, the church of God, right? So it's a public gathering of people in God's name. It has a, there's a purpose. They're marked for an intent, right? And so it's a public gathering of the people of God for a purpose. Now, guess what it doesn't have in there? It doesn't have a quantity in there. It doesn't say how many people are gathered in God's name in a public place. It, it doesn't even say where they're gathered, other than maybe it's a public location or somewhere where everyone's invited in, right? So it's not like a, a secret thing, but they're invited in um, to, to join together in this opportunity. As a matter of fact, some of what we get to do then in these public places is like pro- openly proclaim the word of God, praise his name, that we can do that, that we get to just preach and talk and think and debate and disagree about what the scriptures say because we're the public people of God called out of our private settings. Um, this is another interesting thing, by the way, is it's God's people. And so if you were in a, um, if you were in a, a battle, what do you, this is a really interesting thing, I think, that what do you ultimately want if you're trying to beat a group of people? You want them just to be quiet. Just be quiet. And so I, when I look at the idea of God's people, one of the ways that the church has been attacked from the world is just to stop talking about it. You have you heard this whole thing like, just believe what you want, just don't talk about it. And that's another, a really broken, non-biblical model of what it means to be a believer. I don't think you have to be all the time preaching all, every, you know, every word as a scripture and everything, and you're proclaiming and you're condemning people and all these kind of things. But I do think that you, we have the right, the God-given right, to publicly own our faith. And it takes courage to do that. But if, if the people who know God don't, like, where's that going to come from? If, if the world succeeds in silencing the people of God, the church, where's wisdom going to come from in the world? 
You, you watch like what's happening in, in, in around us. And so many of us, I had a long conversation with somebody this week and they were like just despondent about the state of the world. And you know what I hate to confess to you? I was despondent too. I'm like, yeah, what a mess. Never once connecting that, wait, we're both believing people. <laughs> like, why aren't we saying this is not right? This is not the way it should be. And offering a gospel solution to the world's problems. And if you start to listen again to the things being said around us every day of our lives, there's gospel application all the time. It's the people of God. It's the people of God in public places that are gathered. The ecclesia, those who are called out of hiding into the public. And let me say this real quick. This was not an easy place to be called out either. Like, we go, well, yeah, they were the early Christians. It was, no, no, it was a really hard thing. Talk about missionaries in foreign fields that have a hard time, you know, confessing their faith. I was telling you about the Schraders and offering the lamb to their neighbors. No, it's no harder for them than for us. It's the same. The people of God called out of these private, quiet, or, you know, not quiet, that's not the right word, but these private, secret lives in Christ into a public proclamation of the gospel. Not a, not a haughty, braggy thing, a faithfully lived out belief in the good news of Jesus Christ. That's a marker of the church. The church is God's people. Okay, so we see that. Then here, to the church of God, and then here's the next word, what? And I love this, being in Corinth. Your Bible might read like mine says in Corinth, but there's a word in there called being, and it means existing in Corinth. And that's just to say, there's a little takeaway there, which is what? That God's people are called out, and they're called out in a specific place right? And so there's some things that we talk about the church in Corinth, you would often, you could rightly say, well, this is the Corinthian church. This isn't the Highlandian church, or this isn't the St. Lucian, St. Louisian church. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, this isn't the Breezian church. I mean, you can say that there, there's, but there are overarching principles from scripture that apply to our own context. But we ought to see that there is a context that we're living. The church was existing in this place called Corinth. And I do want to take a minute to talk about Corinth because I think it's really interesting about where God had positioned this particular church. If you want to read about the founding of the church in Corinth, you can find it in Acts 18. You, you can just write that in, if you want to in your notes and you can look at it later. We're not going to go there. But it talks about the origination of the church plant in Corinth when, they were, when Paul was going through it on his apostolic mission. To, uh, to start churches. And so they have the church planting happening in Acts 18. But the, about this place called Corinth. Uh, Corinth was located in Greece, right? But it wasn't just any place in Greece. It was halfway between Athens and Sparta. And so I almost put a map on the screen today, but then I thought, that's kind of nerdy, right? So I don't do that, but I'm going to draw my hands instead because that's more fun. So Sparta is over this like area over here. It's all isolated by water. There's a small little thing that has a bridge now, but it didn't have a bridge then, I don't think. Maybe it did. You guys are probably history buffs. Okay. I don't love history for the record. And then there's this little piece of land right between here, and then there's this other place. I might have this all backwards, but maybe I'm doing it right for you. Who knows? Um, where Athens is at. Well, between these, this, this isolated piece of land where Sparta was and this place where Athens was is this little narrow strip of land, and it's called Corinth. Why is that a big deal? Because God had positioned the church right there in Corinth, in the middle of Greece, but the middle, in the middle of these two great Grecian cities. It's a big deal. Do you know why? Because everyone's passing through Corinth. Like the streets of Corinth are busy. There's lots of things happening in Corinth. I took some notes because I wanted to understand. Corinth has an, an ancient history. It's an ancient history. The, the city was founded about 6,500 before Christ. 6,500 years before Christ is about. And it, they call it, actually, it's so old, they called it the, um, the uh, what is it? Uh, 
myth, the mythology of the origins of Corinth. Like it's so old that they were just like not even sure what the origins were. But in the time of Christ, it was pretty well documented by then what Corinth was. Um, Corinth had been used for, uh, known for trade routes, right? A huge trade route place, so lots of business being conducted there. And there were many, many battles fought, particularly over Corinth, because it was such a strategic location. If you could control that one little spot, you could control almost that entire land, because everyone had to pass through there at some time, unless you're on a boat. And so it had a strategic military advantage. Many, many fights um, had happened over the years. Uh, and at the time of Christ, it had been refounded by Julius Caesar, and actually he named it after himself because he's a little bit arrogant like that, right? And it was called Corinth of Julius Caesar or something like that in Greek. And, and so he had rebuilt the city because it had been absolutely decimated by war so much so that no one lived there. They know that because they look through the pottery in the ground and they see that there's pottery missing. They find really, really old pottery and they find a, a, a section of pottery where they would normally see it. There's none. It looks like they just wiped out the population there a long time until Julius Caesar came along and thought, you know what, I'm going to build a beautiful city there. He wanted to make the city a, 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 a spectacle to be beheld by the world. And this, this city was then, therefore, a complex intermix of culture, of wealth, of trade, and then the last thing, of worship. Because there were many temples in Corinth where you could worship. And there was this, as we still have today, this abject confusion over who God is and what God is doing. I say all this to say what? That God planted the church there for a reason. That there was a local need for the gospel in Corinth. That it was a strategic spot that God's people could have an outsized influence on the, in the culture. Or that they could become an absolute spectacle to those who are busily trading and worshiping around them. God's people are called out to particular places. Now, um, what does this mean for us practically in our life? A couple things, church. And I've been struggling for years to figure this out, to be honest with you. But we are called to Highland for a reason. And I mean the Highland area, because our ministries have reached beyond Highland. We know this, right? We are called into particular situations uh, for reasons, where we've lived into our ministries there. And so what we need to do as a body of people is to look around and see where God has placed us. It's not an accident. Where he has led you to buy a home or to live or to rent. Um, where he has led you to live with other people. Um, whom he has led you to marry or not marry and what that means for your life and where you are. We ought to begin to have gospel eyes for the way that God has called us to be the church in a particular place. And, uh, and that's what we see... Uh, here in Corinth, the witness. Now, we're going to get into some, later on in the book, some, some of the complications of Corinth and what that's, who's influencing who, as we all say that, right? But, uh, but we ought to have some gospel eyes to see our communities um, the way God does. One final thing. Many of us in our day and age commute to work. Commutes have been unthinkable before, by the way. And you have to ask the same question. So why does God have me working here? Or why does God not have me working here right now? What is God doing uh, as his called out ones in the places where I am? And so we have this reality from scripture that God sets people in a place. One final thing I have to tie in here. I say this all the time. But there's this beautiful truth that the Bible teaches us about God. And this is biblical literacy 101. That he knows us so well that he knits us together in our mother's womb. And that we are placed there for a purpose. And I know there's good and bad with that. And you go, man, my story is great. My story is terrible or whatever. Or, or you feel like that as a parent sometimes. Like, man, I was a terrible parent or I'm an okay parent. I don't, know if anybody, I don't know if any parents think they're great parents, by the way. <laughs> I think other people think sometimes someone's a great parent. But I think if you talk to that parent, they're like, uh, we try. But God knows what he's doing when he does that. 
And so that's a very particular placing of his people. And so from birth, through life, through death, God places us somewhere as his people. So we have the people of God, the who, and the place setting is, is the where we are put, right? Okay, so now that's just Paul laying it out. And man, we're like, what, one and a half verses in here to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called be holy, together with those everywhere. But then we get into this idea, the next half of two, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. And we're going to take those in two pieces because these are big thoughts. And you go, man, I can't believe you're going to spend this much time. I mean, I kind of amazed myself. But these are big thoughts that we ought to get through our heads about what it means to be the church of God. And, and here's the first just mind-boggling truth. So we have this kind of practical stuff about who the church of God is and where we are placed. But here's the mind-boggling truth, that the church of God is already sanctified already sanctified. Sanctified is kind of a thousand dollar word, I get it, but I want us to understand that sanctification means to be made holy, um, to be set aside for a purpose, uh, to be pure. The word also means to be whole, like W-H-O-L-E, complete, right? And there's this reality that Paul is professing at the very start of the letter to the church in Corinth where he says, to who? To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Like, don't miss the words. He's writing to a people already sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's a huge, powerful reality that he's teaching the church there in Corinth. Remember, he loves this church, and he started this church, and he's writing back to encourage this church through his letter. And he says, you have already been sanctified. I want to be very clear, because I do look at this stuff, because I want to know. It, this means it's perfectly true perfectly true. This means when we, when we look at the church at large, when we look at the maybe our local church, we look at the big C church, and we think, oh, it's so broken, it's so messed up, or oh, we keep screaming up or whatever, that there's a gospel proclamation being made over the people of God that we are already sanctified, made holy and pure and one. And if you're like me, you go, I don't feel sanctified. I feel the stuff that's not right yet. I feel the incompleteness still. That's because we haven't experienced it, but it's factually true. Paul's writing to the church who is sanctified. But there's a secondary meaning I've kind of mentioned to you. Those who are set aside for a purpose. I told you I was talking to a friend of mine who'd been in ministry a long time. And uh, we were talking about, you know, churches and interest in church and all that stuff. And, and we were, I was just talking to him. And I said, you know, one of the biggest struggles for me as a pastor because he was talking about what struggles are for him or whatever and uh, I said God has to do something to save people like that's what the Bible teaches I can't preach good enough we can't outreach good enough you can't say the right words and the right combinations you can't write down that prayer and say if you pray this prayer that ultimately the Bible says that we are necros in our sin. We are dead in our sin. We couldn't wiggle a finger for salvation. And God speaks life. Huh? Which is good news for dead people. But it's hard news for you when you want people to know. It seems to me that God has positioned himself in such a way that he, he wants to be the center of it all. So what do saints do? We cry out, God, make us holy. 
God save. God redeem. Because it's absolutely rooted in who he is. And yet, we have been sanctified. We have been bought with the blood of Christ. We have been paid for in full. We have been fully redeemed. And though we don't yet know it and experience it in this life, we're called to it. And that's the beautiful part. And there's an awakening of our soul to our maker, our savior. It's a God-given gift. Paul just proclaims it over the church in Corinth. Those who are already sanctified. Think about the boldness of the opening letter that way. He's going to have tons of hard things to say, but you're already sanctified in Christ. You're already called to great things. And it's no different for the church in Corinth than it is for the church in Highland or the church in St. Louis or Breeze or anywhere else. Factually true. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Got to break out that. Not just sanctified in anything. Not holy in yourself. Not holy in ourselves. In the name of Christ the anointed Messiah, the chosen one. In him, we're sanctified. In his blood, we are made whole, purified. You feel that sin struggle in your life? Praise the Lord, because that's God working out your salvation. You feel the hope of the gospel calling you forward? Praise the Lord, because that's the hope of the gospel working out salvation in your life. Already sanctified in Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the church and says, that is a fact, church. It's happened. But then the second part right there on the heels of it, and this is the dichotomy here. He says, you're already sanctified. The, the root word of sanctified is holy. You're already set aside for holy purpose. But in the second, and you're called to be holy. You know, Paul had said, I'm an apostle, called to be an apostle already. Then he's like, and you're sanctified, and you're called to be holy. You're called to be sanctified. This, again, means to be used for a purpose. Uh, but this is a little different because the calling word here is used in a way of an invitation. And so I kind of want to show the, the, um, the give and take here of the scripture where we are factually pure. We are factually redeemed. And yet, Paul says, you are invited, you are called to be holy. Like, it's, an, it's a factual truth that we're invited to live into. It's a factual opportunity to live into that Christ has fully redeemed us, and yet we are invited to live into his redemption in this life. So that's what Paul's concerned with here, the calling of the church. You're called to be holy. The, the uh, NASB does a great job of translating it this way. It says, you are saints by calling you go, you know, like, people say that stuff, like, I don't belong in church. You don't until God wakens you up with the gospel, and then you're a saint. You're called to be in the sainthood of all believers. I love that translation, saints by calling. It's because God is inviting us to a particular role, an office, a position, to be different I think this is one of the marks of the Corinthian church. For all their struggles, they were looking different than the culture. And I think this is a really hard thing to work out in our lives because if we're called to live into this holiness, what does the holiness look like? And I, I hope that maybe each day when we wake up and we decide what we're going to do, what we're going to wear, and how we're going to act, where we're going to be, we're constantly asking the question, what makes us look most like God? Or, and not that we are God, you know, but I hope we're struggling with that a little bit. Like, 
Is this a good or a bad thing for someone who's claiming Christ to do, to live into? Or do we just thoughtlessly do things without examination? Well, he says we're called to be holy. We're invited. And I tell you, I'm not sure about you, but I don't want to miss an invitation from God. So we ought to listen. What is God calling us to do? How is he calling us to live into something that Christ has already done for us in his blood on the cross? Paul's writing this to a church where he's going to address various struggles, like I said, and what's been happening in Corinth. It's not all good news for the Corinthian church when Paul's writing back here. So that's the church in Corinth, right? And so we can, uh, we can stop there. But there's this next part where it says, and to all people everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And so it's not just for the church in Corinth, but it's the church uh, uh, globally. Now that's a big word because I'm not sure Paul had an understanding of the global church when he wrote that. But he said, pass all and then everywhere. It was very specific in his language. Like it's not just for this one location. The letter I'm writing isn't just for you. It's for all the churches everywhere. And we're going to talk about why that is. But he, he says this in another way. He says the ones who are called holy as well. Like they're, they're labeled as holy. But those people everywhere, all people everywhere. And what does the word say? I want you to just look at it. Identified how. Here it is. Who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the next point. Oh, I missed one. And that one. There we go. Those calling on the name of Jesus. That's who Paul's writing to in this letter. So he's writing to the church specifically in that location. He's writing to those who are called out publicly. But he's writing to all believers everywhere who are calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. And here we get this kind of, again, a relationship model, right? So God has sanctified us. He has called us to be holy, and we are called holy. And then we are calling upon Jesus Christ ourselves. So there's this like symbiotic awakening of a relationship that we live into every day of our lives. Those who are called, and I, I just want to say again, he means everyone, everywhere. It's very specific, very specific. So all people everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are called holy and who are calling on Jesus. This is a big definition of the church. Because see, those are just two definitions of what he did, the church in Corinth and the church everywhere. And that's a really wide definition of the church. And this is going to kind of tr transition us then to, um, to where he ends his greeting here. And I love it. I love it. But I want us to see that this, this is a lot of people in a lot of places doing a lot of things in Jesus' name. He's, he's like, you're not the only ones invited into this. And, and therefore, there's lots of people, lots of places that are working out their own salvation that God has, has, is sanctifying in his, uh, in his way, only the way that only he could. And so we have this opportunity um, to, to join them. Uh, and then he, sa this is what, then he says this. Every, those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then ends like this, their Lord and ours. Actually, the second Lord is in there. It's implied from the first. But anyway, so it's like, 
They call on the name of the Lord, that's Kyrios, the, the, the ruler, the authority, the absolute boss, right? He's writing to the Corinth, Corinthian people. They have this new city established in Caesar's name, and he writes them, and he says, you are under the same lordship as all the people everywhere who are under the lordship. Their God and ours are their Lord and ours. So the implication is it's the same Jesus doing the same work everywhere. Interesting. So this is one of the problems that we do find in church. Then we're like, well, this is different and that's different. We're not like them and they're not like us and we're not sure about these things and that thing. We ought to not be biblically illiterate and we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and, and really understand what God is teaching us. And yet, I think there's supremacy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like that's where the Lord meets the road for us. If, if, you, if you understand what Jesus did for his people, that's the common thread of faith in Christ Jesus, this awakening of God and then the people of God. There's other things we can talk about. We won't this morning. But we ought to be able to discern where God is at work and what God is doing. This means a whole bunch of stuff we can't even get the application of, but it ought, does mean we could bring accountability to one another. That's why we do mission trips sometimes because we want to go worship in another place, another context, and we want to understand are they, are they getting the gospel right there? Or do we need to correct them in the gospel? And then God will humble us in our arrogance and say, do you have the gospel right where you are? Or are you confused by your context? <laughs> and that's what missionary work does sometimes. It kind of puts us all, wait, wait, nothing in common but the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. That's what we proclaim. Because the churches proclaim a whole bunch of stuff that's not the gospel. So that's the primary call of the church. See, getting out in the faith community together, that works both ways. And then, and then we are invited to under the same lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why I didn't like the word quiet earlier because there is there's a persistent humility in the church of God that isn't grandiose, that isn't self-serving and self-seeking, and that is glorifying to God. And I always think it's, you know it when you see it. You just, people know, and people outside the church know when they see it, they're like, that's different. I get people promoting all this stuff. I get people, you know, rah rah and advertising and running a business. I get it, but that's different. And that doesn't take all that other stuff. It takes the gospel. It takes salvation in Jesus Christ to be that kind of quiet faithfulness that God brings. So we have the same Lord. Here's our last point, y'all. So Paul, and I love this. So he's kind of invited this. He's spoken some powerful truth of the church, them and us. By the way, we're all included. Praise the Lord, we're all included. That's the big thing there, because all you could say, well, it's Corinth, not us, but man, all the people everywhere who call the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's me. That's you, I hope. And then says this, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, how should we greet a church? How should we greet a ministry? With grace and peace. Uh, the word for grace is uh, charity. It uh, can be uh, kindness. Not with a glaring eye, you know, suspicion, you know. But, I mean, Paul just lays it out there. He's like, there's this big, grand opening, and he's like, man, there's these great truths in Jesus Christ. And he's like, and grace to you. And he's going to have more good words for us next week, so don't be too discouraged, but then he gets in some hard words, you know. But he lays down all the good stuff. He's like laying it out like, God is doing great things in you. It's awesome what's happening. Grace and peace. And we talked about peace. Um, this is the greeting of Jesus, right, and resurrection, peace. Uh, a calm, a quiet, you know, don't panic. 
And Paul has to write that at the very beginning of the letter. Don't panic, y'all. It's going to be fine. And he does that right before he teaches hard things. What does it mean to be the church of God? We've talked about that idea of being sanctified but not feeling it, right? But it means that we have these conversations where we go, we start with the grace and the gospel, the good, and then we talk about hard things together in the most loving way we can imagine. Because otherwise, what are we doing? We're not loving each other. So it kind of goes like this. You know I love you, right? And you're like, yeah. And hopefully there's enough relationship that are like, yeah, I do know you love me. You're not just jerking my chain. You're not just trying to butter me up to take advantage of me because that should not be the motivation of the church. You know I love you, right? And there's some hard things we need to talk about because I love you too much not to talk to you about them. See, that's a whole different model, isn't it, of interaction. As a church, as part of the body, the called out ones of Jesus Christ, we have this opportunity to experience that kind of grace and love from each other, peace and grace and truth. And that's a big picture of what God is doing. I just want to stop with that this morning and just, just bask in the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done. And listen, and the fact that he's brought grace and peace into our lives. For sure, Christian, hard things are coming. Hard conversations, stupid decisions, bad circumstances. But fundamentally, the first words are grace and peace. We've been given so much in his name. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. It's a prayer of thanks this morning for his grace and peace to us in Jesus. Lord, we do all sincerity of heart, those woken from the dead, uh, those lost in our sin, but invited into your kingdom. And maybe this morning someone here, or maybe someone who's hearing this who's just like uh, sensing your awakening, uh, sensing the spirit that you've, you've imparted to them, that you've, you've spoken life into death, that this would be their moment with you. I don't know, Father, that's you. That's not us. But Father, for, for that moment, we give you praise and thanks. We give you thanks for those who are lost in sin and woken to life, who are drowning, drowning in our own uh, failures and rescued into salvation. Oh, Lord, for our first breath into true life, where we just got a, a wisp of air as we were suffocating. We praise you. We praise you for your church that you awakened. And as we continue to live out this life, Father, would you continue to awaken in us your Holy Spirit's desire? Whatever we are and whatever we're doing, would you continue to prompt us in a real way? You know, we come together here at the gathering, the public gathering of the people of God, but Father, in our daily lives that you're with us and would you, find, would you help us to find those partners in our life that we can do it with for real? We can just be, man, this is a hard day. This is a good day. This is an awesome opportunity. Would you just, in those different contexts, Father, would you bring people to encourage us in our faith? Oh, God, would we be the kind of people that would encourage someone else? Call us into their lives. Speak truth. Speak love. Would you do the work? in our lives. Oh, we are called, 
and we are surrendering ourselves to you, vocational ministry, that you would use us where you see fit in our various callings. Father, we thank you for your grace and peace. We thank you that we have all the time we need to do all the things that you want done before we spend all the time we ever had with you forever. Glory to you. We love you so much, and we thank you for the word, for your power, for your people, for your church, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.